Well, that last song has so many of the, the privileges that we sometimes take for granted as followers of Jesus, a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us. Um, anyway, as we continue into the book of Ephesians this morning, we're all the way, gosh, to the end of chapter 2 already. Uh, so let's, uh, let's look at that section of Scripture, starting at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's open in prayer. I thank you, Father, for how you have such a perfect plan conceived before the foundation of the world. I thank you that you included your people at that time, too, elect before the foundation of the world. And this perfect plan is coming to, came to fruition in Christ Jesus, in his own body, in his life that he sacrificed on the cross on our behalf, that you brought peace out of hostility. You brought reconciliation where there was just alienation before. I'll help us, Father, to grasp that this morning, the fact that you are building us up together as living stones into a holy temple. Maybe, Father, may that burn deeply into us to understand just how much you have given that we might be unified as believers in Christ. We get to practice now, but we're going to be spending eternity together. And I just thank you for that. And I thank you that you will cause us to fit together. You'll cause us to grow together. You'll cause us to exercise our gifts in ways that will help one another. And you'll help us also to empower us to serve our community. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where on earth is the Apostle Paul taking us in this part of Ephesians? And I think it makes more sense if we start from the end in view, which means we're going to go down to verses 20 to 22 just to kick things off here, where he says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, so God, as the expert craftsman, is calling out people from their lives of rebellion and, and uh, self-centeredness in order to unite them into a new and living temple. He says a place, a living place for God by his Spirit. Well, how is God going to complete this impossible task? Well, Paul is answering that question throughout the chap this chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. Now, the people of Ephesus knew how temples were built. 
First of all, you need a designer, and then you need a site in which to place the temple. Then you need a design that tells the, the builder what the designer had in mind. And so with a plan in hand, the builder then needs to find the best available building materials that's required by the design. And at that time, temples were built out of stone in some form, laid up one over another on a really large stone foundation that had to be massive enough to support the entire weight of the structure. And the final temple, when it was completed, was a reflection of the designer's plan and the builder's skill. It was a reflection of the designer's workmanship, his masterpiece, a wonder for all to see. And of course, the folks in Ephesus knew all about that because they had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there at the temple of Artemis. And the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was no slouch either, and it was a sacred place to the Jewish people who at this time were scattered all around the world, especially out throughout the Roman Empire. So from our text, we already know, for God's living temple, who the designer is. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the builder. We also know that people, like us, are the living stones that are going to be joined together to form the structure. Well, how can sinful people, in rebellion against their creator, become a holy temple, a temple where the Holy Spirit can dwell? Well, the first logical step is to take those individuals, those people, and convert them into living stones, responsive to the designer. But as Ephesians 2.1 has already told us, we have a problem. It's even bigger than Houston's. Right? We are not living stones. He, he tells us we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're power, powerless against the devil and his cohorts. And we are by nature under God's judgment. We're in rebellion against the designer. And then comes Ephesians 2.4, one of my favorite verses, where it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So as uh, Marvelous Marty showed us last week, our status under God was completely and totally changed from death to life, from powerlessness to strength, from objects of wrath to actually being united with Jesus Christ, seated with him in the very throne room of God. And not only that, but God showcases those who are in Christ as his workmanship, his masterpieces. He took care of that barrier, that sin barrier that exists between himself and mankind in Christ. So all of that precedes our text, which begins with, therefore, remember. So to perpetuate the old cliche, what is the therefore, therefore? Well, it signifies that it's not going to talk about the conclusion of what's gone on before. Now it's going to appear. In other words, he says you need to remember, you need to keep in mind all that God has done for you in Christ. So our text begins by targeting Gentiles, which is a pejorative term used for non-Jews, anybody outside the Jewish community. Well, why start there? Well, we know that God is making living stones out of dead people by removing the barrier of sin between mankind and himself. So we and our Christian brothers and sisters are his building material. But these stones still have to fit together tightly according to the design, which is where the second problem occurs. God has living stones, but they don't fit together naturally. Jews and Gentiles are sworn enemies. If you try to place a Jewish stone next to a Gentile stone, 
there's going to be a gap. And gaps are not what you want when you're building with ashlar stone, stone built together with a bare minimum of mortar, if any at all, very tightly together fitting. So it's kind of like I have uh, two magnets here. If I take these mags and bring them together this way, I can't push them together. They keep repelling, they keep pushing against each other. But if I flip it around like this, they grab together. So this is where Jews and Gentiles are outside of Christ. What God has to do is reverse the field. And he does more than that. He actually makes us both living. So at the time of Paul's writing to the Ephesians, there were serious walls between Jews and Gentiles. So strong that they are not going to fit together in one new temple where Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing with Christ. The two groups are alienated from each other. So that's why he starts out by telling them, remember what you once were. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul begins with this kind of derogatory statement aimed at the Judaizers, remember those who were trying to convince people that they had to become Jews before they become Christians. So he begins with a statement before he explains the, the five-fold description of how the Gentiles are alienated from the Jews. So he's illustrating this, this wall between Jew and Gentile by bringing back our old friend from Galatians, circumcision. You thought you'd heard the end of it. This was a deal breaker with devout Jews because it was the physical sign of the covenant that God had made with Father Abraham. And to the Judaizers, there was no way that a non-Jew male could become a part of God's covenant people without the physical act of circumcision. No circumcision, no salvation. Now, the early church dealt with this in the book of Acts, chapter 15 in particular, using two main arguments. And the first one kind of should be the clincher. That is, the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Jews and Gentiles alike without the Gentiles becoming Jews first. So there's the first piece of evidence. And Paul goes on and then has an argument as a second piece of evidence where he says, if you look back at Abraham in the very first stage in chapter 15, he actually agreed with God. He demonstrated faith in God, trust in God, or the promise that God had made to him. And it says, the righteous shall live by faith. That was in chapter 15. Well, that very same covenant that God made, in which he said that Abraham would become the blessing for all the people of the world, that same covenant was ratified sometime later in chapter 17 in Genesis. And this time, circumcision was added as an outward sign, the mark of ownership, kind of a reminder of God's promise to bless all the world through Abraham. So here's how Paul argues in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well something the Jews missed for a long time. So a Gentile, which is a non-Jew, could become a Christian without the outward sign of the covenant with Abraham. 
But that doesn't bring about a reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. It just makes things worse. Because the Gentiles, not only that, suffered from a, he says, a fivefold alienation, a separation where there's deep feelings on both sides. Gentiles were, he says, Christless. They were aliens to the Messiah. He says, remember you were at that time separated from Christ. They were not part of the Messianic people. They didn't even know what a Messiah was. They had no hope of being redeemed by a Messiah. They were also stateless. They were aliens to God's nation from the commonwealth of Israel. Remember, Israel was a nation, from their perspective, under God's direct rule. It was a theocracy. The Gentiles had no part of that. They were friendless. They were aliens to the covenants, strangers to the covenants of promise. God had bound himself unconditionally to, the, to bring blessing upon and through Israel. But the Gentiles, they didn't have a promise like that. They were hopeless and godless. They were aliens to hope and aliens to God. The pagan world was religious in everything. There were temples and statues everywhere. Look at the great world religions of today to see it still in existence. Can the scripture be right? Is the pagan world then and now godless? The answer is yes, because false gods are nothing, and religious ceremonies are nothing without the true God. The Gentiles were indeed without hope and without God. Now, as chronological snobs, we think that alienation was invented by Karl Marx. We live in a world that specializes in and fosters alienation. It has identifiable characteristics, psychologists tell us, such as things like this, being unable to see meaning in personal actions, relationships, or world affairs. You already feel alienated? Believing that actions have no effect on outcome. Believing that you have no control over your life. Believing that what happens to you in our lives is outside of our control and doesn't matter anyway. Now the past 15 months in particular have been a case study in alienation. Between the pandemic house arrests, Antifa, BLM, and Capitol riots, the election, and everything in between, we find ourselves in a fine mess. We face a system that actually works hard to alienate us from each other while talking unity out of the other side of their mouth. I hesitate to go against the Lego movie too, but everything is not awesome. And woe be unto him or her who opts to question or even push back against the orthodoxy that's been established by the establishment, be it the media, the political class, the tech gods, corporate culture, or academia. And we're given this increasingly narrow lane in which it's permissible to travel. Step out of line, you'll get canceled. Defend someone who stepped out of line, you're going to get canceled too. How dare you act contrary to what I think is right? Somehow we traded basic manners and common courtesy for maniacal policing of one another. The world has way too many joyous, joyless Karens. <laughs> Wear a mask. Join my rage mob. Check your privilege. Be less white. Signal your virtue. Of course, we know that we have evolved to a much higher level of enlightenment than these poor people in ancient Ephesus to whom Paul's writing this letter. How could they be experiencing anything worse than what we're going through right now? They were. 
We've seen that God has dealt with alienation from himself through Christ, the vertical component. How is he going to deal with this impossible situation of two opposing groups that are alienated from each other, two opposing ethnic groups? So Paul emphasizes the alienation that God's going to have to overcome to build a true living temple. And I love this little section from the commentator William Barclay. The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. Obviously, reconciliation is going to be really easy to do, isn't it? God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in childbirth, because that would simply bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. And if you remember the movie or the play Fiddler on the Roof, remember Tevye's reaction when his number three daughter became engaged and married to a Gentile. Except he relented a little bit, and at this time, people did not relent. It was permanent, a permanent breach. So, and the standing symbol, really, was the dividing wall of hostility. That magnificent temple built in Jerusalem by Herod the Great was constructed on an elevated platform. Around it were three courts, for the priests, for the lay men, and for the lay women, respectively, all on the same level as the temple itself. From this level, you descended, after going through a wall, several steps, like 14 steps, I counted in one case, beyond which, of course, was the court of the Gentiles. From there, the Gentiles could look up and they could view the temple, but they could not approach it. There was a no-man's land between that wall and the edge where they were not allowed to go, let alone into the, to the temple courtyard itself. And there were signs attached to that wall at intervals, two of which had actually been recovered by archaeologists that said, in translation, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Another old sign you used to have on the, in the Westerns, survivors will be prosecuted. It's kind of the same basic idea. Now keep in mind the Apostle Paul wrote this letter from prison. We need to understand that because the reason he was in prison is directly tied to what he's talking about here in our text. He was in trouble. He was actually arrested because he was accused of breaching that wall. He was accused of bringing a Gentile, a fellow named Trophimus, who had to be from Ephesus, into the court of Israel through that barrier. And the riot that started from that false charge resulted in Paul eventually being sent to Rome as a prisoner and eventually died there. So, of course, the hatred of Jews for Gentiles was mutual. Not just at Ephesus, but throughout history, even up to our present day widespread anti-Semitism, even in the church. It's one of the most tragic accusations made against the church in over the past 2,000 years has been our treatment of the Jewish people. It's a sad blotch on the church. But the Greeks had their own parochial hatreds for anyone who wasn't like them as did the Romans. 
I mean, Plato said that anyone not Greek or barbarians were his enemies by nature. Even the title barbarian was a derogatory term, a term of ridicule. The Greeks said that foreign languages sounded like barbar to them. So anybody that spoke a non-Greek, didn't speak Greek, was a barbarian. To the Jews, the Gentiles were dogs. To the Gentiles, the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race. Now, how are you going to bring them together? How is God going to be able to break down those walls of hostility? I spent some time on it because we don't have a real good understanding. We think we have walls. This one, this is two intractable groups of people. Well, how do we break down rules of host, walls of hostility between Jew or Gentile or, or Greek and Roman or between free men and slaves or between men and women or between races or between long-standing ethnic, ethnic hatreds? Paul wants us, he says, never to forget where we were before we were joined to Christ. But fortunately, he doesn't leave us there. Those walls have to come down. So what's God's solution? Consider what Christ has done. In verse 12, Paul says to the Gentiles, those ethnic peoples outside Israel, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. That's what it meant to be on the outside of the covenant people looking in, like be on the outside of the temple looking in. So then we cross the dividing line between the two testaments and move from separation to reconciliation. Verse 13, but now... It's like verse 4, doesn't it? But now, since Jesus Christ has come and died for sinners, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, in verse 4, one of my favorite expressions I mentioned, you know, but God. Well, but now is its first cousin. Many nations, many ethnic groups, many families were separated and alienated from Israel and from the covenant and from Christ and the promises. Then God did something to change all that. He sent Jesus Christ into the world. And Jesus, of course, is God's solution to any sinful situation. In him, he says, we move from far off to brought near. Well, how did Christ overcome that separation? Paul says he did it by the blood of Christ. Well, how did Christ dying on the cross overcome this separation and alienation between Jews and and between all their ethnic groups. Well, verses 15 and 16, he does that. He says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Kind of interesting shape, isn't it? God breaks down. He had already broken down that horizontal sin barrier through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ also is the one who breaks down this barrier of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Or you can put any other groups of people in there that you want to that hate each other. But I thought that Jesus taught that he did not come to abolish the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Hmm, conflict. We have to look, go back and look, though, that the context of the Sermon on the Mount deals with the moral law, especially the Ten Commandments, of which Jesus reiterates nine of the ten. He leaves out the one about the Sabbath. He continually contrasts the so-called righteousness of the Pharisees 
with Christian righteousness. And he contrasts external keeping of rules with the true meaning of basic moral commandments. So Paul's primary reference here in, in Ephesians is to the Jewish ceremonial laws, their rules and their regulations, which included things like animal sacrifices, dietary regulations, rules about ritual uncleanness, Sabbath keeping, and of course circumcision. Jesus obeyed all aspects of the Jewish law as God intended, and he fulfilled then all of his legal requirements. He's the only one who ever did. So as long as the Old Testament law, in particular, the law understood as commandments expressed in ordinances, as long as that was the foundation of how people are reconciled to God, the Gentiles are always going to be on the outside. Of course, the, Gentiles, the Jews themselves are also going to be alienated from God because even for them, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So Paul says Christ died to put reconciliation with God and people on a whole different foundation, namely himself and his own blood. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And what did he put in place as a way to be reconciled to God and to each other? He created, he says, a single new humanity in place of the two. He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. The cross, once again, is the key. When Christ died, he covered the sins of Jew and Gentile for all who would believe on him. For by grace, remember, you've been saved through faith. And he provided his righteousness, his standing before God, for Jew and Gentile, for all who would believe in him. He did this by making himself their substitute. His punishment was theirs. His righteousness is theirs. Both coming to completion on the cross. The story told of a bishop, John Reed. He tells about driving a school bus in Australia that carried whites and aborigines. And tired of all the squabbling he kept hearing, one day, way out in the outback, he pulled off the side of the road and said to the white boys, what color are you? And they said, white. He said, wrong. You're green. Anyone on this bus is green. Now what color are you? And the white boys answered, green. Then he turned to the aborigines and said, what color are you? Black. No, you're green. Anybody who rides on my bus is green. So all the aborigines answered, well, yes, we're green. So peace reigned at least for a few miles, down the road. Then he heard a boy in the back of the bus say, all right, light green on this side, dark green on that side. <laughs> well, the bishop had the right idea. What was needed was a new race, the greens, but he couldn't convince his riders. Our text says that Jesus created a new man, a new humanity, a new race. Back in the second century, a bishop Clement of Alexandria wrote this, we who worship God in a new way as the third race are Christians. So Jesus did not Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create some sort of a half-breed. He made an entirely new man. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, his, workman, his masterpiece. We are a new race in Christ Jesus. He's done away with the old ethnic rivalries. And the blood of Jesus is the only way that we sinners can come to God. Therefore, the blood of Jesus is the way that God has designed for all ethnic groups to come to each other in peace, 
namely in coming to God in Christ together. The blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of our sins is the only way any human from any ethnic group can be reconciled to God. And therefore, the blood of Jesus is the way that God designed for every ethnic group to be reconciled to each other. So reconciled to God and reconciled to one another in the same person, by the same way. Well, how else did Jesus destroy the wall of hostility? It says he reconciled the new humanity to God. He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus killed, he says, in his own body on the cross, the hostility of Jews and Gentiles and any other religious or ethnic division you want to come up with that mankind's ever created. This is the reality in the hearts and the churches where God, where Christ truly reigns. And in the end, it's going to be a universal reality. In the, new, in the new earth, we're going to be one family. And all of this culminates in Christ's ministry of peace and reconciliation where it says, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, Gentiles and Jews, and through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So in this way, Christ removes the hostility between men by removing the hostility between God and men. God's wrath is removed because Christ bore our punishment. Now God is our Father. And his family now consists of people from every ethnic group who come to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, all the same way. He is our peace. The highest achievement of what Jesus has done is the access that we now have into this Trinitarian greatness of God. Through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So God is calling all people to move from the alienated heritages of race, ethnicity that we're born into, to the third race of disciples of Jesus Christ. And he's called us for that same ministry of reconciliation. And the picture here is that the true Israel becomes the church of Christ, and the church of Christ emerges as the true Israel. And what unites this new people is Jesus. We are the people of Jesus, not Jew and Greek, not slave and free, not male and female, not barbarian, Scythian free, but Christ is in all and is all. Well, how should, how should we Gentiles then respond to what God has done? By considering Jewish people second rate? Absolutely not. He says we respond with wonder and, and thankful hearts for the fact that God broke off the branches of the olive tree and grafted us wild olive shoots in, you know, the, into our, the Jewish heritage. We were once alienated from God, but now we who were once far off now are being brought near by the blood of Christ. So where is this process going? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I've been blessed uh, to be able to spend usually short stints in foreign places with strange languages. I can think of uh, Ukraine and China and Albania, Canada, even South Carolina. 
And what stands out in each instance is the true unity that I find in worshiping with other Christian believers. And many of you experience the same thing. Regardless of our human citizenship, we realize that there really is a third race of people who are joined together forever by Christ Jesus. So in order to describe the richness of this changed position and our new privileges in Christ, Paul uses three familiar models of the church. He pictures the new, now Jew-Gentile community as, first of all, God's kingdom, then as God's family, and finally as God's temple. And he says, we Gentiles used to be stateless outsiders, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, not a part of Israel at all. But now we're fellow citizens with the saints. Now, he doesn't develop this metaphor here. He does in other places in the New Testament. But he's alluding to our new citizenship now in God's kingdom. In Philippians uh, 3.20, it puts it this way. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a new citizenship. Now, the kingdom of God is not restricted to an area. It's not restricted to a realm. It's God himself ruling his people and bestowing all manner of privileges and responsibilities as we extend his rule to the whole world, one person at a time. Jews and Gentiles, he says, are on equal terms in his kingdom. We no longer live on a passport. Now we actually have birth certificates. We belong to the world to come. But he gives a second picture, too, and that is God's family. So here Paul, mixing his metaphors on the fly, he moves from an impersonal-sounding kingdom to a place of intimacy, members of the household of God. And he's saying, we're much more than just fellow citizens under God's rule. We are also children altogether in his forever family. As Christians, he says, we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. We've been adopted into his family by grace through faith in what Christ has done for us. And we members of this third race all have the same father. In chapter 3 uh, of Ephesians, Paul puts it this way in verses 14 and 15. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Next week we'll explore the reason why that's true. But family, at least it's supposed to be, usually is the place where you can be yourself and usually be accepted. You can put your feet up, you can do all kinds of things you probably wouldn't do in, in the public, but it's a place of Relaxation. It's a place of acceptance. It's a place where you can be yourself and usually be accepted. And he says the, true, the church is the place of reconciliation and acceptance, it's like a family, where you can be your true redeemed self. Let me move on to the, to the third picture that he gives, and that is God's temple. I wish I could spend more time on this because this whole theme of the temple is one that goes throughout scripture and I think it's one of the pivotal ways of trying to understand scripture God has now reconciled his people to himself through Jesus work on the cross and he's broken down and once again destroyed the wall of hostility that separates Jew from Gentile skin color from skin color male from female elites from the rest of us Olympia from Prosser you name it he now has building material from which to fashion the living temple that he alluded to in the garden of Eden Adam and Eve started out in God's first temple. It was a place, a place that was set aside for intimate fellowship with God himself. He walked with them. It was a place of worship. 
God, had in, God intended that, that garden sanctuary be extended to all parts of the world, that God's temple, God's presence would fill the entire world. But we know and experience what happened as Adam failed to tend and protect the temple. Now that God's temple has taken several forms since Eden. I mean, as Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, it took, it took the form of a portable tent structure. At the time of King Solomon, it became a massive stone structure in Jerusalem. The Babylonians destroyed that building, but it was rebuilt by the Jews returning from captivity and then massively enlarged and beautified by King Herod to the temple that, Jew, that Jesus experienced. So for a thousand years, the Jerusalem temple had been the official focus of God's presence and God's people. But a new race needs a new temple. And one that's physically restricted to Jerusalem is not going to be adequate when you reach the world for Christ. So this new portable temple has three elements that Paul emphasizes. It has a foundation, he says it has a cornerstone, and it has building blocks. Now that word order where he says apostles and prophets suggests that Paul means New Testament apostles and prophets. In the New Testament, prophets were those individuals who proclaimed the word of God. And there were some women who did that too. This is supported by Ephesians later on, chapter 3, 4, and 5, where Paul states, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Then in chapter 4, verse 11 in Ephesians, he reinforced this whole idea by referring to the apostles and prophets as God's gifts to the church. So I think he's talking here about New Testament apostles and prophets. Now, since both the apostles and the prophets had unique teaching roles, the foundation he's talking about here for the, for the temple is truth. It's the scriptures. It's teaching. It's God's word, especially the New Testament scriptures. That's the foundation. One of the reasons why people get really sensitive when other individuals start tampering with the foundation. Uh, it gets under my skin very quickly when people try to figure out some way to go around what the scripture has to say or find some way of reinterpreting it to take it out of its context to mean what they want it to mean. If we tamper with the foundation, the entire structure is in danger of collapse. I remember enough about engineering to know that's true. And that's why Paul ordered Timothy, his disciple, back to Ephesus, he says, to preach the word in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. But not only is there a, the foundation to keep part of this temple, there's also a requirement for a cornerstone. Now, cornerstones don't mean much anymore. It's just a block put in a corner someplace, maybe not even in the corner of a building. Usually it's hollow, so you can put artifacts in there to you can dig out later on to remember what it was like when the building was built. In the time that Paul's writing, cornerstones actually had a purpose. It was what, it's what determined the stability of the foundation. And it, was, and, it, and it actually formed the character for the entire building. And for hundreds of years, actually, Cornerstone was a prophetic description of the Messiah. I'll give you one example in Isaiah, uh, chapter 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. The shape and the stability of, the, of a stone structure was set by the cornerstone. And sometimes, especially if you look at the, what's been excavated at the, the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem, they could be massive. There are a couple of, a couple of cornerstones there that are the size of boxcars. How they got there, nobody's figured out yet, but they're there, and they're cornerstones. The lay of the walls, you know, the dimensions of the structure, everything was adjusted to the cornerstone. The cornerstone provided the alignment. And that term in Isaiah 28 where it says a tested stone refers to the cornerstone being a stone of testing. It tested the building. He always referred back and tested the building against the cornerstone to see if it really is meeting the plans and specifications of the designer. The cornerstone was the key element. So the shape and stability of God's new temple, this third race, is determined by Jesus Christ. Our lives, our reconciled relationships are built using the strong lines established by the true cornerstone. What he's told us, his commandments, the new commandments that he's given us, to love one another as Christ loved the church. And the final one we, that he talks about are building blocks. I mean, the New Testament, New Temple, the building blocks for this new temple are, are us. You are, building, you are a building block in God's new living temple. Yeah. Gentiles were excluded from the Jerusalem temple by a wall and by signs threatening death to trespassers. But now in Christ, we are actually the wall of the temple. We form the wall. God reached down and took stones out of Death Valley and made them into living stones fit for his use. And there's no more hostility between adjacent blocks. We fit together perfectly. So what's the purpose of this living, growing, moving, radiant temple? To become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Just as God took up residence in the wilderness tabernacle, filling it with such glory that Moses couldn't even enter it, just as God filled the temple in Jerusalem the same way when Solomon was, was there to actually uh, dedicate it, so now, by his spirit, he makes our third race his chosen dwelling place, a suitable habitat for the creator and sustainer of the universe. And you can see that at Pentecost. What was one of the signs of the coming of the spirit? It was flames, the Shekinah glory, over the heads of the individuals, showing that God has now rested, his Holy Spirit now resides in us individual living stones. The soul wherein God dwells, what church could holier be? It becomes a walking tent of heavenly majesty. Let's pray. Your wisdom, Father, your plan is way beyond our understanding. I thank you that it, it's only being revealed through your word. It was, as we're going to see in the next chapter, it was a mystery. It was hidden in times past, only could be seen in bits and pieces. But now we can see in Jesus what your plan was all along. And I thank you too, Father, that it involves all mankind. It involves each and every one of us. You are creating us in Christ Jesus 
not just to be workers of good things, but also to live in peace and harmony with one another because Christ is our peace. He is our harmony. So, Father, help us to get away from the way the world tries to divide us and, and uh, lead us into areas that are situations where we have no control. But, Father, bring us to an understanding all the time, despite the pressures around us, that we are one in Christ. And there's nothing that can divide us. So, Father, do not, please keep Satan from, uh, and all his cohorts, from dividing us, from alienating us from who you are. Help us, Father, as we take, as, as living temples, as we move into this world around us, help us, Father, to be consistent and faithful disciples as we lead others to yourself. For we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.